Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm here with Andrew Miller, and we are going to talk about transportation, the future, uh, perhaps some some AI bits, uh, driverless cars, and um, and more. And uh, I met Andrew at Sidewalk Labs, uh, where he was really looking at the whole transit plan of the future, um, not only people drivers, but uh, accounting for uh, other modes of transit, um, and of course bicycles. So. Uh, we have stayed in touch and had many, many good conversation over a beer, and um, I'm excited to have him on the podcast now so we can kind of get into some of those topics. Uh, so to kick us off, maybe I could ask you, Andrew, to give the audience a sense of sort of where you've, you've come from. You actually have quite a varied history, uh, and I'd love for, for folks to know that. Thanks, Patrick, uh, and thank you for having me on the show today. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to see you. But it's a pleasure to speak with you in this forum. So my background is unusual, and I'll share it with you and your audience because I think it's it's not just uh, I, I think it's interesting, but it also illustrates some principles about the sort of career you can have if you uh, depending on the choices that you make. I began my career as an academic. I rolled right from my undergraduate degree in history at McGill in Montreal to a master's degree at, uh, in history at, at Yale University in the United States, uh, and then to a PhD in history at Johns Hopkins, uh, also in the United States. So my goal was to be a university professor of history at uh, what the Americans call a research one university, a high powered uh, academic research school that does very serious, important and groundbreaking work. And I graduated in 2004. I bounced around on the academic job market for two years, not making much progress. And in retrospect, I can see the reason I wasn't making much progress is I didn't want to be an academic. I'd spent my 20s preparing for a career that I decided in the end I did not want. And we won't go into it. Your audience won't be interested. I'll just say briefly that the reason I didn't want it is because academia as a profession is absolutely shot through with worked perverse incentives. Uh, it isn't a place to live the life of the mind, which is what I thought I was getting. So I said to myself, okay, what, what do I do next? What do I want to do? And I said, well, what's my hobby? And my hobby had been thinking about transportation and how people move around cities and the, the economics of it, the psychology of it, the systems level thinking of it, everything. So I said, all right, well, how can I take this hobby and turn it into a career that leverages this now Baroque credential that I have? And I said, aha, government, that's the place to go. So I joined the civil service in Ontario, my home province, uh, at the Ministry of Infrastructure. And I started out in the health file, but I was studying transport infrastructure in my spare time. And I got an opportunity to join the transport, the, the transport team. Uh, and I took it at the very day that the province of Ontario announced uh, uh, billions of dollars in new transit funding. So all of a sudden, as the transit expert on a file that was suddenly very hot, uh, everyone wanted a briefing and I was off and running. So I spent all told seven years at the provincial level doing transport analysis for various levels of government. I was at finance for a while. I was at transport for a while doing all sorts of things. I moved to the city of Mississauga where uh, I lived then and live now. Uh, I designed a bus rapid transit way. Uh, that was a four year project designing that, but also Thinking through the land use, and this is something we might get into later, but these days you cannot do transportation planning without also doing land use planning. They're really the same field now. And on the base, so that took four years and the plan was approved, but the city really knew it wasn't going to move to implementation right away. So it sort of signaled I was going to have to start thinking about something else to do and uh, enter sidewalk labs. And Sidewalk wanted someone to think about uh, mobility planning, both the traditional, how do we build land, 
rapid transit in the traditional way, light rail transit, to the neighborhood that the firm was planning to build. And they wanted people, someone who was an insider, who was connected, who had thought about these matters. And I think the fact that I had these Baroque academic credentials to the Ivy League, lots of the senior folks at Sidewalk did too. So I was, they recognized me as one of their, one of their own. So it was, I was exactly what they were looking for, I guess. So they invited me to join and it was perfectly timed. Same day I got uh, told, we don't have a role for you here at the city. You've got to go. Was the day that uh, I'd signed my contract with Sidewalk Labs. So I was able to say, well, thank you. I do, in fact, have somewhere to go. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I, we, we can talk about the Sidewalk experiment if you want to. But I was at Sidewalk with you for a time. And when that wrapped up, I became a full-time consultant in uh, innovative mobility, which is what I do today. Yeah, I think there's like a number of uh, things we could jump into there, uh, even like, you know, academia and uh, what did you say? A life of the mind. Did you yeah. say that? Is that a saying? What is that? So the life of the mind is, I'm afraid it is, it's an ideal that is sold to academic, uh, progressive academics that is mostly a lie. In its, its noble form, the idea of the life of the mind is, uh, do you want to spend your days just doing work that is not engaged your higher faculties? So the stereotype of this in the culture is the middle manager who spends all his time filling out TPS reports and never does anything creative, never thinks about anything deeply, isn't allowed to. And because of that, those muscles melt away. You become intellectually flabby and, and, and you lose everything that if you grew up as a good student, you often think is what's most special about you is your ability to think deeply. So the premise is, is that, ah, but in academia as a professor, that's all you do is think hard about ideas and then communicate them to other like-minded individuals and have spirited debates and and work your thinking muscle to its most highly developed state. That's what I wanted. Uh, and I fell for the lie because it said that, A, that you can't think about deep ideas outside of the academy, outside of university life. That there's no professional jobs that do this. But B, that that's what professors get to do. Uh, the first part is clearly a lie. There's all sorts of jobs where you get to think deeply about interesting ideas. Uh, journalism was one. I guess it's largely dead now. Certain kinds of consulting, like I do, is another. Uh, but government can allow it. Uh, the big, you know, the tech firms, the big tech firms certainly allow it. There's all sorts of places to think uh, for a living or, or part of your living. But conversely, uh, university professorships isn't very much not about life of the mind for much of the time. It is about uh, grinding out publications to meet your tenure clock. Uh, the, at, at least the, the part of the academy I'm most familiar with in history, it was expected that if you got a job at a senior university, a research one university, you had four to six years to turn your dissertation into a book, write a second book, write 10 to 12 articles that got published in high quality peer reviewed journals, sit on a lot of committees and also teach full time. Uh, this isn't the life of the mind. This is being a hamster on a treadmill, trying to spin smaller and smaller insights into bigger and bigger uh, publications so that you can uh, check all of the boxes it means that that's why so much academic publishing is unreadable and unread is because it is not designed to find an audience. It's designed to tick boxes on, on a tenure clock. And in theory, once you achieve tenure, then you either have to like the school that you're at. If you don't, you need to go to a different school and probably start that a better one. But then you start that tenure clock all over again. Once you decide to relax and say, okay, I've got tenure, I've got academic freedom, no one can fire me, now I can finally work on what I want to work on, 
you're so intellectually exhausted that you don't do any of that. You just go back to playing softball in the evenings, reading novels for pleasure, enjoying the company of your spouse and kids if you have them, because you've ignored them for the past six to eight years. It is, uh, that's not the life of the mind. Whatever it is, it is, uh, there's more opportunity for creative and deep thinking outside of that world. Mm. And uh, so that's what I elected to do. Yeah, I, I guess to, you know, so, so I guess for context, this podcast should be a pursuit of the life of the mind. That's kind of like, and what I mean is like, it may not be that practical. That's the conversation here. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, probably anyone in a private or public or academic or commercial endeavor can find themselves doing TPS reports or find themselves um, engaged in interesting conversations. And it's kind of like, on you in some way to find the conversation that you're most interested in. Um, but, but it is interesting to think that the way that academics is advertised may not meet, you know, the experience uh, of most folks involved. Um, in terms of the mind, I, I do notice some books behind you and, uh, uh appropriately, uh, the sidewalk volumes, maybe you could talk about sort of uh, the, the process of, distilling all of that years of work in, into a book. So the sidewalk was, and I'm speaking, I think, to your audience more than to you, because you know this, you were also there. Sidewalk was a, a unicorn in terms of a place to work. There never was a place like it before. I wonder if there'll ever be a place like it again. Uh, for all of the all of the ink, digital ink spilled about uh, the supposed agenda of the place. I think of it as a as a uh, intellectual spa for urbanist nerds. We were given so much money by Google to try and think hard about how to build the right city. And as, as someone else observed, our CEO would poke his head into the room every so often to say, hey, guys, you know, at some point we got to make money, right? And we were like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll absolutely do that. But it was never top of mind or even second of mind until late in the day. And by the time we were thinking about it, uh, events had overtaken us. Much of the time, we were just, it was really bright people, whether that was in the mobility field or sustainability field or public housing or public space or graphic design interfaces and computer programming areas that I don't know anything about. And it was so delightful to sit at the same lunch counter and think about how to apply our skills. I still remember uh, having lunch with you and, and, and Michelle, one of our colleagues, and talking you talking about user design. And I was eating it up because I'd never thought about it before. And then on another occasion, we were actually in the, at the cafeteria. And I explained to you what I thought was sort of uh, a straightforward point that transit stations near the water maybe are not as successful because half of the walk shed area is in water so there's less space to have successful buildings to build a community and it was clearly a new idea to you and i thought oh this is wonderful that we've got the chance to uh, take stuff that to us is straightforward but to other people is uh, is fresh and exciting and have these conversations about how to build something new and that's what these volumes behind me were, was an attempt to build something new, really try to think about how you could integrate cutting edge mobility thinking and sustainability thinking and all these things together at once and see if you could do something great. Uh, it's, it didn't last, but I guess, you know, dreams, you always have to wake up from a dream eventually, but it was such a wonderful place to work. Yeah, I, th I thought it was, I mean, that's what attracted me is like, you know, we're an you know, architect on one side, investment banker on the other, software engineer, transit planner, like where else are you going to find that that mix of folks? Um, yeah, I, th I think that the, the books are beautiful and the vision is, is great. I do get antsy when things don't get built. And I also get antsy when they get built too fast or without consideration. So there is a sweet spot. Um, and I, I'm sure there, that there was a, you know, a set of ideas, I know this is true for me, that I've held on to since that time and just like been manifesting in different ways. Um, one of those 
I think is your work uh, and research and sort of understanding and case studies on uh, driverless cars, which I have in the background here. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about um, what is the driverless endgame? Well, I'm happy to tell you about it. I'll, I'll just observe at first that if, if you get antsy when projects don't get built or, or things take too long, don't get into transport infrastructure as a career. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I said I, I did a plan for a, a, a busway extension for uh, City of Mississauga. We finalized and approved that plan in the summer of 2018. Uh, and we're still waiting to have shovels in the ground. I'm told it's going to happen later this decade, but you have to be very, very patient and accept lots of false starts before something new comes. Well, I suppose uh, before we get into the driverless thing, just to respond to that, <clears throat> I often think about the car as an analogy to like any new technology. And historically, the reason is because at first it was a hobbyist pursuit. It was like mechanics and kind of like fiddlers who had these cars and built them out and they were dirty and ugly and inferior to this horse. And then they, you know, the Model T obviously changed a lot of stuff, made them uh, a lot more accessible. But the notion that the when you talk to the mechanic who's fiddling with his combustion engine and you or he would say, one day the city is going to be oriented around this thing, it would be ridiculous. But I think what it shows is that there is like a hobbyist pursuit of building things that can lead to vast societal change. And that's on like the physical dimension where you have to like actually build roads. I think there's an analogy that's obviously much faster with um, the internet, um, now with AI. And I guess I just wonder, um, you know, transit planning takes a while, but a lot of the stuff that you talk about integrating like let's say scooters or you know robots delivery robots these are things that are kind of like almost like laboratories and like untested ideas that kind of get tested out and then integrated into the plan so yeah what do you think about like the space for building things that don't exist um and the speed at which you can do that well cars are a good example of this and it took slightly less than four decades for the motor car to supplant the horse as the mode of uh, as the, the, the principal mode of transport in North America. Things, everything takes longer than you think that it will. Uh, nothing happens fast. Uh, people talk like the iPhone arrived like a bolt from the blue sky in 2005. And all of a sudden, within 10 years, everybody had a smartphone. That's that's cherry picking. I mean, the mobile internet, the BlackBerry was before that. The Newton was before that. There were all sorts of devices that were part of the mobile internet uh, before the iPhone. It's just the iPhone was brought them all together and did them well. Things take a long time, and automated driving, not least. Uh, I don't know. I am confident that we're going to have fleets of robo-taxis prowling around our, our major cities uh, and largely displacing private vehicles. But I don't know how long it's going to take. I think if, I had to, if, you, if you pressed me, you insisted I give you a number, I would probably pick something like 2060, not just because the evidence seems to be the point that way, but also because I don't think I'll be alive then, so you won't be able to you'll be able to call me on call me on it if I get it wrong but yeah despite the fact that we've got robo taxis in San Francisco and Beijing today they're not going to be ubiquitous for decades to come that's just you have to be patient but you also have to there you have to look for on the one hand small opportunities to make money find opportunities early on if you don't have that then you just have to rely on enthusiasts like uh, like those early tinkerers with motor cars, like uh, uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page in their garage, who were tinkering with, hey, how can we organize information? Uh, 
that was a bet that paid off spectacularly well but most don't most require time and space and hobbyists to move it forward yeah i guess on the hobbyist front the thing that excites me is being able to do a demo that changes people's minds so as an example ai as you say has been in development for decades um, but it was really chat gpt that brought about this consciousness of wow this is this is pretty amazing and that is like it's an interface it's also like an approach to delivering answers uh and training a data set to to be more conversational um and i think in the car case i do think like the model t or like the mass production is a turning point and so like the interesting bits are not the idea that it itself like driverless car or like you know ai chatbot or internet browser it is like the how like the little tweak on the model uh that makes it work i think for uber that was really like seeing the car approach and not having to tip them <coughs> um in san francisco where you know there was no taxis to be found but i'm curious with driverless cars or let, let's actually look backwards like do you see that kind of inflection point with perhaps um, rapid uh, bus transit or um, scooters? Or do you see like the, the inflection point in, in transit technology of the past? Well, there's several questions there, uh, Patrick. The inflection point for technologies of the past, I mean, famously, streetcars were the, the technology of the future in uh, before before the, the Second World War. And, uh, people, anyone who's seen the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there's jokes about how streetcars are, uh, how everyone gets around by streetcar, but hey, there's this new thing on the horizon, the freeway and the private car, it's going to, uh, going to change everything. And the joke there was is that we know that freeways are going to be lead to traffic jams. They won't. They'll make things worse in many ways. But it is true that the private car, for all the flaws that it had, did supplant streetcars. The story of why all those city urban rail lines went away is a complicated one. But if, if you're asking what the killer app was for the car that displaced all of it, it was... Uh, two things at once it was point to point travel this car can take me from where i am to where i want to go without intermediate steps i don't have to uh, take a speed walk to the streetcar and then take the streetcar and then walk to my destination but the other was privacy in my car i didn't have to put up with people jostling me on the streetcar i didn't have to put up with other people's sounds other people's smells other people's uh intrusive behaviors and that is still today why uber flourishes in places that public transit doesn't is other people you know sartre said hell is other people uh, and so to, to be free of them to be in this little bubble of privacy that was the killer app for the motor car as the uh, way to get around the way to get around and what did we complain about uber uh the, the number one complaint i hear about uber from people uh, when it's not safety it's chatty drivers oh dear the driver wanted to talk to me dear dear lord that's not what they're paying for they're paying for silence and privacy and being left alone and that was the killer app that that was what made the the car the way to get around a city as opposed to a bus or a streetcar. yeah uh and i i can't help but invoke uh, McLuhan, that's the you know name of the podcast. But uh, you know he talked about the car culture versus the walking culture, and the statement was that um, you know each extension we have um, atrophies another ability. So like the extension of the car um, of our feet actually like atrophies our walkability or like our as a society at large our walking culture. Uh, and, and, you know, all these things have that give and take. It's basically, yeah, you get the privacy, but now you get isolation, right? And you get the point to point, but now you get traffic. And so nothing comes um, for free. Uh, I do think it is interesting that the car 
is a very user-centered product, whereas the transit is almost like a centrally planned um, technology. So in one case, and, and that's really like, in some ways, that's how the, the market is designed. You sell a streetcar to a city bureaucracy. You sell a car to, you know, a guy with a garage or a family with two kids. And so it makes sense that one would resonate more than the other with the populace. And when you have like more of a, let's say, a consumer-oriented individualist society that values freedom, probably the the way that the the decisions get made is, is more about individuals rather than on the planning basis. I do wonder if there's a way to sell a more walkable uh, lifestyle to the individual rather than have this dichotomy of like, is it about central planning or freedom? Like, is there a way for it to be about a voluntary uh, participation in, in, in a walkable life? Absolutely, there is. So uh, the I, I, I mentioned I'm not with Sidewalk Labs anymore because no one is. It, it's rolled up. I'm a consultant now with Hatch, uh, Canadian consulting firm. And as to the best of our knowledge, we're the world's largest privately held uh, consulting and professional services firm. And I do two things there. One is I'm building a practice on innovative mobility. So driverless cars and air taxis, the sorts of things that we've been talking about. But the other thing is with the team, I help to design and deliver new transit-oriented communities. And not just transit-oriented. If you're going to have a transit-oriented community, that means that it is also a a, a, an active transport oriented community because these two modes complement one another. So everyone talks about the 15 minute city. That's what we try to deliver for our clients is well-designed, successful 15 minute cities. And I, I focus on the, the mobility side of that. So how do we integrate transit with cycling, with walking, with the other modes that are coming like scooters and, and that sort of thing. So this question of how do you persuade sometimes skeptical audiences that this is what they want? I mean, some people just get it immediately. This fits what their taste. Uh, others don't. How do you sell it to them without making it feel like you are uh, you know, tricking them into something? And the answer is, uh, hey, in a city, not owning a car, that's freedom. Owning a car is burdensome. You have to store it somewhere. That has to be, that's, that space has to be paid for. That uh, the car itself, you have to pay monthly fees to, oper to operate it because you need insurance. Uh, you need to charge it. Right now, there are not enough electric vehicle charging facilities in cities. Uh, we're trying to help change that because we need a full switch to electric vehicles to save the climate. So, But for right now, an electric vehicle in a city, it's better than a gas car, but it's, uh, it's better yet to have no car at all. So you don't need to bear that burden. Cars are, and if you do drive somewhere, you have to then find parking where you're going. And increasingly in cities, that's hard to find. Or if you do find it, it's very expensive. Wouldn't you like to live in a place where you don't need to bear those burdens, where you can walk or cycle to anything? It's going to take you 15 minutes, but you can satisfy most of your needs. If you need to travel regionally, there is good buses or streetcars or light rail or a subway that'll get you to where you need to go. And if you absolutely do need a car uh, because you're going away for the weekend or you're visiting your parents or uh, what have you, you can uh, you can either hire one through ride hail or you can rent one for your personal use. Isn't that a more attractive way to live? So this is, I mean, as you know, we did a deep dive on like mobility as a service. And um, the problem is the whole thing is framed as what a car 
what the absence of a car, how we could deal with that, how we could mitigate the problems of the absence of a car, rather than the presence of something desirable, right? So like, it, like what is the magical, like there is a magical experience of car. That's why we have car commercials, right? Like I'm driving on the road in like Utah, I'm going through the mountains, I have my beautiful stereo. So there's kind of like an experience there. And this is the nature of like a consumer product is you have to sell it as a lifestyle, as the experience of the thing. And it's very hard to sell like walking down a neighborhood or your kids playing safely in the street because it's not just you, right? So like <clears throat> you can't buy that because if I buy that, my neighbor's still going to drive around. So like that end state of um, having like a, a safer street because there's no cars on it, um, it's not addressed by like, hey, I can get like a ride share because it's still like not as good as a car um and i i think that there's like the, there is like the neighborhood scale that it requires um and i wonder yeah are there models where people are buying into a neighborhood scale and getting that lifestyle and then what would be the car commercial of of for walking so the the marketing angle is interesting i'll i'll tell you something that once you hear it you'll never look at a car commercial the same way again there's two kinds of car commercials. One is aimed at uh, working class people. The other, more common, is aimed at upper class people or aspirants to an upper class lifestyle. Working class, so you know, think about uh, Harley David Motor, Harley David Motor, Harley Davidson motorcycles. Uh, they're not they're not cheap, but they're definitely aimed at a at a working class audience of people who aspire that way. You never see a commercial where there's just one motorcycle. There's always a bunch of people on motorcycles. Working class car commercials stress community. Look, this is something you're doing with as part of your group. Upper class, it's different. You are always the people presented are always alone. They're alone in their cars. Maybe occasionally they've got a partner or a spouse or a significant other with them. Uh, but more often than not, they're alone. And not just in the vehicle, but outside. If they're down a city street, which is uncommon, it's completely free of other vehicles. But much more common, you are driving along a road through the mountains or through the forest or you're off-roading through a plane there's no one else around at all it is splendid isolation that's what the fantasy that's being sold is you're perfectly comfortable you are perfectly alone mm -hmm. and you know i don't know why they do that but we can reverse engineer these commercials these marketers who understand very well how to press people's buttons that's the desire that's being pressed is a desire for uh, the freedom from other people. Yeah. So how do you how do you sell that for walking and or cycling or a fifteen minute neighborhood? That's the thing about a city is it's not you're not alone. You don't have that splendid isolation. You you can't really. Well, that's quite so, interesting. Like to think about the car as an isolation experience. And maybe that should be something you can buy in the city. Like if you, if you just think about real estate, like the notion that I can buy a car sized piece of the city by just buying this vehicle. Um, and then I have the right to keep it in this square footage. It's pretty valuable. I can bring that square footage with me anywhere. I can park in a parking lot and just like hang out. Um, so it's interesting to think about it as real estate. And I do remember at sidewalk, like having a conversation and realizing mobility is a housing solution because if you can drive 45 minutes away from the city, you can have a cheaper home, but housing is a mobility solution because if you live near your work, 
then you don't have to have a car. And that, like, actually we conflate these things. Like, sorry, we don't conflate them. We, like, separate them. We silo them. But they're part of, basically, this lifestyle. And certainly, uh, in the case of a car, it's probably the most private space most people have. I mean, at home, you're still sharing the, the, the place. I have an office, so I'm alone here. Um, but I could imagine this office being in the in a car-sized place, and I could drive it around. <laughs> I mean, that starts to sound pretty attractive, not as a as a way to get places, but as a way to like be focused. Let's say there was talk before the pandemic that people liked their commutes because it gave them a chance to be alone. Neither it was a third place that wasn't home and it wasn't the office. There's some truth to that. Not as much truth as we thought. The, 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 the wide embrace of working from home has proven how the older wisdom that no commuting sucks and people will, uh, they would prefer to do not do it at all if they can avoid it. But if there's no way to avoid the commute, a short commute where you are alone so you can think or read, people, people, and people do value that for that reason. But I, I'm, I'm struck by the question that you asked is, what is the right way to frame uh, a desire for uh, privacy and isolation in a mobility, in an urban mobility context? The best that I can do is suggest that um, when, is the, when, when taxi bots arrive, and that is far away, but when they arrive, I suspect that it is not going to be, you will not see a combination. People imagine uh, a combination of a city bus today, except with a robot driving, or a taxi cab or an Uber today, except with a robot driving. I'd suggest it's going to actually be a third mode. That what it's going to be is imagine a shuttle bus, something as big as a city bus, but with individual doors going into individual pods. Yeah. That uh, it might, if you do a shared ride, something where an algorithm can say, well, Patrick's going to location A uh, and Tina's going to location B. So we'll pick Patrick up, pick Tina up, and then we'll go pick up. Uh, We'll go pick up Rit before dropping either Patrick or Tina off because that's the most efficient routing. But in this scenario, Patrick and Tina and Rit have each got their own pod. They don't have to interact with one another. Some of these pods will be bigger for groups of two or three, but you won't have to interact with strangers because that is part of the service, is not sharing space. You couldn't do it today with the existing city buses that are fixed route and are, uh, it would be too inefficient. But speaking as someone who does ride the city bus as part of his commute, at least part of the week, sometimes I don't mind, but other times, yeah, there are obnoxious people and I would love to be segregated from them and not have to deal with them. Yeah, for and sure. If that's part of the offer, that's, it, it's going to be part of the offer. Well, that's part of the offer of having a car, right? I think even in the case that you're talking about of like the Harley Davidson or the Ford F-150, where you're helping your community, they're not in their own car. They're like in your car, right? Or like they're with you. It's not like you want to be around random people. You still want to be around your community. And that's what the, the private mo um, automobile offers. And again, it's like, how can you have that little carve out in the city that's yours that you've paid for but then be able to like move to the destinations you want to go i i do think like that kind of like specific uh, individual uh compartments on some sort of like a shared transit um at least a little caravan of of things um would that help with congestion or like uh is there any benefit to putting those things together or is it better to just have them be individual little 
slow-moving offices. The lesson that everyone took from Uber that wants that wanted to innovate in the mobility space, that is, I should interrupt myself to say, the mobility innovation space, I think, is, is drying up rapidly uh, between the one-two punch of High interest rates, meaning that venture capital doesn't want to take speculative. Uh, they're not. They're not as hungry for returns. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, the AI being such an obvious place where if you are looking for returns, the, the cheapest ones where you can get it. Mobility innovation is is drying up fast. But when it was in its heyday for the ten years after two thousand eight. Everyone was looking at Uber and saying, oh, the answer of Uber is point-to-point -point private transit. How do we do that? Let's create new guideways in the sky because we couldn't see how to build them uh, underground or on city streets. Let's build new elevated guideways, have a network of them, and have little private pods going everywhere. Uh, and that was silly. Like the idea of having to build all that new infrastructure for this. And if you did, there's just no way that it could work. Uh, though a lot of people spent a lot of money and time hyping it. No, you have. Oh, no. Hmm? Are you still there? Yes. Can you okay. hear me? You have to. I was on the edge of my seat. You have to use the streets that you have. How do you use existing rights of way more efficiently? Mm -hmm. The way that you do that is you've got more people uh, in the same vehicle. Like that was the premise was shared rides. If every There was a vision that a lot of people sold of when the robo taxis come, everyone sells their car. There's just robo taxi fleets at scale everyone's in their own robo taxi but they're shared and so the algorithm can route uh the trips most efficiently i think that we can see that that's not going to happen or at least it's not going to happen in our lifetimes uh, but the insight is the same is that you need to have shared vehicles people willing to travel uh out of their way so have trips that take longer in order to have aggregate improved trip times uh for everybody uh because uh, there's fewer vehicles on the, the vehicles on the roads are using the space as efficiently as possible so we clear more trips even if some trips go longer and the way that you accept people to take trips that are not as fast as they could be is because they're cheaper because it's cheaper to use a shared trip than it is to have a direct point-to-point -point one I think that insight, assuming that you are stuck with the roads that you have, I think that that insight is uh, correct. So I come back to the only, you have to provide shared vehicles, but you have to mitigate the thing that everyone hates about shared vehicles, which is the sharing. It's the being in space with other people. Yeah, it's so, like a counterpoint to the sharing piece. Um, you can go to a high-end hotel uh, and that is where if you have like a bunch of money, you still want to stay in a hotel, right? So I go to a different city. I want to stay in like the Ritz Carlton. You can also go to that same city and you can stay in a hostel. Now, if it was the same price and the same audience that was using both, they would kind of both decrease in value because the hostel would have to go up in price and the hotel would kind of go down in desirability. And so, this is a convoluted way of saying what is the future of private transit private shared transit on the city level i.e some people take the kind of mercedes shuttle with wi-fi and tables and coffee and some people take the streetcar Private transit has always, the Achilles heel there has always been that the way that you make money is through serving the most, the trips that are short 
that are also most popular. So if you think about it from a business point of view, every vehicle, uh, you want it to be full of paying passengers as much as possible, as often as possible. So if you've got a scooter, for instance, if you're running a scooter company, you think about how can I make sure that that scooter is being used as close to 24 hours a day as possible? Every minute it's sitting idle is the minute I'm not making money. Scale that up from a scooter to a bus or a streetcar or a subway car. Uh, the, the, the way that you make money is having as many people aboard and having the vehicle in use as much as possible. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, you immediately identify the, the, the trips that are most popular. So uh, in a Toronto context, that's moving from Union Station because all these people got out of their GO train mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to an office that is somewhere uh, along Young Street because that was, you know, it was, it was the busiest district. So you just run that route. Uh, along Young Street up from Union. So it's not an accident that the first leg of the Toronto subway was from Union Station up to Eglinton. And in those days, the subway made money because that was the most popular route was along that corridor, back and forth, nothing but all day. Every, uh, it wasn't until Metro Toronto and its wisdom said, no, we need to have subway service out to the suburbs, so created the Bloor line uh, that went out into the suburbs. All of a sudden, the subway started making, it started losing money because that was, those trips were, some people wanted to take it, but far fewer of them. Uh, every time you extend the system, you are, assuming you're being in an efficient way, you're spending more money chasing fewer passengers which means that at some point you cross a line and you're not making money anymore and the whole thing needs to be subsidized. A government can subsidize because there's public benefit to having a system that has got, uh, that is extensive, covers large areas, serves lots of residents. But a private operator who doesn't care about that, that just wants to maximize value per vehicle, will only identify, will identify the most popular routes and only serve those and will never cross that line where I can make, uh, I'll start losing money if I extend this line out. So if you privatize transit, what happens is uh, you get operators coming in cramming, competing for the big routes, and then everyone else uh, does not get served. So like in a scooter example, in a Toronto context, if I was owning a scooter company, I would want the central business district where there's lots and lots of people. Uh, the scooter will be used all hours of the day and night. So a window, something like, you know, bounded by, say, somewhere a few blocks, you know, Bloor, Bathurst, Jarvis to the lake. And I'd, I'd fight tooth and nail to have that service area. And I wouldn't, I would actually try to avoid having a service area beyond that because I wouldn't want people driving scooters out beyond that area. There might not be someone who'd use the scooter and bring it back in. Then I've got to go to the trouble of managing my fleet. Whereas if I've just got this dense area, it doesn't matter where the scooter gets left, someone will be along to take it to another part in that zone. So if you've got a private mobility system, uh, all the, the dense areas get creamed off and everyone else suffers. That's why public transit is public uh, everywhere that it's successful. What about Tokyo? Well, Tokyo uh, is just, it's, it's a function of just how I was there earlier this year. I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, but it's impossible to escape the, the fact that Tokyo's success, part of it is the Japanese uh, national culture, things that are hard to replicate. But also, it is so very, very dense. Uh, everywhere you go, there are people uh, living, working. Uh, the, the, the density of the, of the network is, the density of the city is so great. It makes the, it means that any sort of transport, there's demand to go from one area to another. Mm. Uh, 
Toronto, to pick the example that your your listeners will know the best, how much density is there on the Danforth line? I mean, you just have to go, I don't know, Castle Frank even, east of Castle Frank. You, you look in vain for anything that's more than three stories. Uh, and yet it's a subway line. It's, it's absurd. We should be having density everywhere where there's a subway. The fact that we don't is just scandalous to me. Yeah. Well, so here's the question. Um, so you painted a picture where, as a private transit operator, I want to go to a place where the routes are frequent. I want to keep the highest utilization of my asset because that's how I make money. And I'm like on a razor's edge of profitability even then. So then servicing Castle Frank just doesn't make sense as a private transit operator. If we if we unsilo or we bundle transit and housing, why is the real estate value of Castle Frank so high, but the value to a private transit operator so low? Put another way, what would it take to reframe private automobiles as real estate? Um, like as kind of extensions of real estate at Castle Frank? In a word, it's uh, population density. Density is what enables scale. Uh, it's what enables any sort of activity to become more valuable. Uh, the more people live in an area, uh, the more people want to take trips out of it, the more people want to take trips into it. And it's a it's a canard of uh, public space planning. Right, but one... let me let me stop you because I think what we're coming back to is like the car and the transit. Part of the value is getting from A to B, but part of the value is privacy, um, mm -hmm. and the ability to like have my friends in my car, uh, or to like ship goods to me. So like if you unbundle that a little bit um the car value and like you think about there are houses in castle frank stop that are just like crazy expensive like toronto is just crazy real estate market um is there a way that this private automobile could be some i'm just thinking like could you buy that in some way could i buy a share in this private automobile could i could i yeah could i co-share it with you and then we have an office at Castle Frank if we want to, or it's like a co-working space, or it's like a little cafe. Like I wonder, could the could the transit blend into actually be a kind of semi-public space? It could, and the the consider condos where they have a deal with a third party. There are twelve cars in the basement. And anyone in the building can borrow one, not for free. Usually there's a surcharge, but it's a slight surcharge. You know that there are 12 cars in the building and they don't need one per resident. They can have a much smaller ratio of cars to resident because they know that not everyone's going to need one at the same time. But that allows you, uh, in some sense, the, the, the access to a car while also uh, not having a one-to-one -one ratio. So it does get that it's quasi-shared because it's a member of everyone in the community. You can imagine in the future when cars are driverless that uh, a name, you know, a development or uh, would collectively own a certain number of driverless cars for this reason so that everyone can, and then if you need to use it, maybe you share it with someone else's and the algorithm routes you as, as appropriate. That's a future that we can imagine. Note that you're not sharing it with everyone in the world. The sharing community is pre-selected. And so you have a chance to screen out people with whom might be irresponsible, might be unpleasant. Uh, that is what people, uh, people want. I mean, you, it's the it's it, the, the the desire for privacy is as much fear of strangers. Sometimes we want to be alone for our own sake, mm -hmm. 
but sometimes we just want to make sure that we're not going to have to deal with people with whom we would rather not deal. So a community, a, 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 a shared scheme where you get to pre-qualify who gets to be shared, I can see that being something that Yeah, and I think in many ways there's like, oh, well, you just want to be alone and individualistic or you want to be, you know, public and anybody can come in. But the nature of community isn't that everybody gets to come in. The nature of community is that you belong and a bunch, the majority of other people don't belong because they're part of some other community. So it does, like, it's like a housing development or or somebody's house, you, you got roommates, there's only so many people who have the key. Um, so I, the that makes sense to me that one would want to participate in such a thing. And um, I really think that, well, what I wonder about is uh, real estate has a financing um, component to it. I can go to the bank, I can say, hey, I'm gonna buy this house, give me a million dollars because you know the land value is worth that and the house is there. I can't really do the same thing with a car. A car is a depreciating asset. Housing is a depreciating asset. Um, so it goes up in value over time. Is there a city or a, a part of the world or a model where actually my parking spot is a financeable, maybe it's like a mobile park, parking permit, let's say, is a financeable um, vehicle, finance vehicle. There is, there's talk in the United States of uh, the way that you solve the problem of street parking being this free thing that means that there's, uh, the, the city has to finance all these people parking their cars in public spaces, uh, which only benefits you have a car, so it encourages you to use it is to transition to a world where uh, the, the road remains public, but you have a market in a parking space. So everyone who's got a parks in front of their house now, you get uh, a transferable property right in the use of that space. And then you can start trading them. You could then rent your parking space to someone who needs it more than you do. You could work with your neighbor, you could club up and so two contiguous parking spaces, then you could put a um, ghost kitchen or a package parcel pickup depot there that like you could you could monetize it mm -hmm. rather than simply use it as a vehicle storage space. And if you do that, then over time, the city could also uh, start acquiring these, it could it could buy them back, essentially and say, okay, well now there is no parking on this street and right. use then you know, reclaim it for a right. bike lane. Right, so limit the supply over time, depending on the behavior. Yeah, it's not the way that I would prefer to go, but it's, you need to find a path to uh, of some a better future from where we are now, where you cannot mess with this street because everyone who lives here needs to park a car on it and uh, they will fight tooth and nail to uh, losing that privilege. Right. So when you turn it into, it's not a privilege, it's something that you have a property right in, and then you start to use the power of the market to erode it. I guess there's another story there, which is like, you know, there's the, the privilege, then there's the market asset, but then there's like, what's the benefit of having this kind of like um, transient uh plot of land like that's what parking is right it's like uh i have a plot of land it's wherever my car is and i get to put my car there and i i wonder like the ability for people in a neighborhood to bootstrap community spaces through these kind of like autonomous parking vehicles so like maybe you have a sauna maybe you have a pool maybe you have like a couple conference rooms and they just take up parking spots and i do it yeah so maybe here's a question i know we're not there on autonomous driving how are we on autonomous parking there are devices and you can look these up on youtube uh devices that they're robots they are very 
uh, flat. They ride up, they move themselves under your car. They extend out uh, uh, paddles. That's not a good term, but they extend out from either side. They can lift your car up and they can move it. So it's called robotic valet parking. Um, and this is the, the idea here is it was invented because if someone's got a fancy car, again, privacy, they don't want a valet, a sweaty valet coming in and sitting in their seat and moving their car. So how can you move the car without having to let a stranger into the cockpit, so to speak? Mm. But you can imagine the way that what you've just described, you could imagine that um, you could place on one of these, you can imagine a bunch of uh, containers that's got a spa or a dog spa or any sort of service kiosks. Uh, and a robot could come in, uh, pick the kiosk that is of most appropriate, move it into a parking space in a neighborhood, everyone uses it. Then at, when at the end of the day, it comes and takes that container out and then brings in another kiosk it's open for public parking. There's all sorts of uh, models that you could imagine. Uh, if you if you accept that these robots that can move cars without having to have a driver in them as a platform. Yeah, I guess what's attractive, this is super cool, by the way, super cool uh, robot. Um, funny eyes too. Um, I, yeah, what's interesting to me is like moving the class of asset that it is. Like and and kind of like valuing the parking spot in a way that it's not today. So you talk about like how this is free parking and like it's a public road and like I just think in Toronto where we have crazy housing crisis, the real estate market is super um, hot, but then the parking is like incredibly cheap comparatively, square footage wise isn't there something that like there's an arbitrage opportunity to kind of like turn parking sized spots into a real estate product that somebody could realistically buy together with a community and then finance through a bank and that would be an appreciating asset rather than a, than a depreciating asset oh there absolutely is and we it's it really took a boom during the pandemic because there were so many parking garages where there was no one parking in them because no one was going anywhere. Uh, so parking garage owners said, well, what is it that we're going to do with um, with these spaces? How can we make money of that? We make money on that. So I just uh, want to get the, the name right. Mm -hmm. Metropolis is the name of a firm. Uh, it's uh, I, I know of it for a few reasons, but our our for the former our former CEO at Sidewalk Labs, one of his family is uh, deeply involved with it. But Metropolis, among the things that they do is they buy up parking garages and then they say, okay, now we've got this great urban real estate. What can we do with it that isn't warehousing vehicles? Um, so you can park for certain times. But you can also uh, have ghost kitchens. So you can have food trucks that are there and then have vendors on bikes go and deliver the food from the ghost truck. And that's for certain times of the day when there's a lot of demand for food. When there isn't, it leaves. You can have parcel delivery companies come in and have mobile staging areas. Again, as part of the parking garage, you could do that overnight to facilitate a lot of overnight deliveries. Uh, and then, uh, at the beginning of the day when people need to start parking again, those disappear. Uh, there's a lot of things that they're doing, but it starts with the premise that you described, which is a parking garage is urban real estate, and there's lots of value to be had there that's better than just holding a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think that this, this is kind of like, this is parking garages, right? So it's kind of like, the, there's a whole building that's fit for a purpose for storing cars. Um, I guess more just like familiar to me is street parking because we have street parking, we don't have a parking spot, um, which is kind of like 
it's a better locate it's more walkable you know what i mean in, in terms of adding life and density and vibrancy to a neighborhood if you replaced like a third of the cars or like 10 percent of the cars with interesting buildings essentially uh you would have a lot more vibrant vibrant um city this might be something to it might be a note to end on but uh, if you read um the the Nero Wolf novels. It's a series of uh, private detective novels written by Rex Stout from the early 30s through the uh, through the 70s. So if you and he wrote one a year, so there's a vast corpus. And if you read in them, you can see how American life is changing over that time. When you read the early ones, I'm struck by the fact that uh, uh, our 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 narrator Archie Goodwin. Among his duties is he's the chauffeur to his employer, the private detective Nero Wolf. Uh, the car is not at the brownstone where they both live. It's in a garage a few blocks away. Archie, when he needs to get the car, needs to go take a walk, go to the garage, get the car, bring it around to the brownstone. Wolf comes out, they go on their trip, and then at the end of it, the whole thing is reversed. It is taken for granted that you can't keep the car on the street in front of the brownstone. It's got to go to this special place. Maybe that's the future. Maybe we get used to the idea that a private car isn't something that is immediately in front of your house. Maybe it's uh, a short a short distance away. Uh, for some neighborhoods, that would be you what would be lost in convenience for individual householders would be a net gain for public realm, uh, public health, there'd be, be, there'd be gains from it. And uh, that loss of convenience, though, I mean, people like convenience and they're afraid of losing things. So mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that coming out, come, happening without a, like a move to public policy nudging in that direction. But, yes. And then I think we get back to what is that inflection point? What is that how of how do you begin to do this in a hobbyist way um reclaiming you know we have parklets we have examples of this but it it will be interesting to watch what is the straw that breaks the camel's back or the linchpin that allows this to like um to really change how we think about handle pay for finance use uh, these vast amounts of real estate in our city which is devoted to, to parking well, and if I knew that, I would go off and do it and <laughs> make lots of money. But uh, there's something in the delta between how much you can spend on charging someone to park their car versus how much you can use that for other, how much money there is, how much value there is in using that space for other purposes. When the delta between those two uses gets high enough, uh, the market will find a way. So uh, I look forward to it. I look forward to the market solving this problem. Me as well. And until then, we'll live the life of the mind. We'll try. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Um, one of the, you know, Shirley will uh, have you on again. One of the things I've been thinking about is maybe just uh, having a more informal setting for this, perhaps over a beer. I don't know how the audio would work, but, uh, or maybe like a, a little group of people to, to discuss. Uh, but I really appreciate you being on the podcast and sharing uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And yeah, I would love to sit down with you, maybe over a cocktail rather than a beer. But cocktail. There sounds, you go. Sounds delightful. Okay. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Bye now. Bye.